The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome a friend and a terrific children's book author, Catherine Pryor. Now, I happen to know Catherine from her former life, which was in the field of improving food at food banks, in food communities, in institutions in the Seattle area. She has worked with Food and Water Watch, the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, and Healthcare Without Harm. So she comes with a solid resume looking at food and health. But she's had a total life change in that she's switched career paths, focusing now with children's books. And we spoke actually in 2014 when she had just come out with her book called Sylvia's Spinach. And her new title, and the one we're going to be talking about today, is called Zora's Zucchini. So welcome, Catherine. It's great to have you back. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I love what you're doing. I think when we first had our first interview about Sylvia Spinach, a children's book which would get any hesitant green food eater to fall in love with spinach, I really concentrated at that time on the importance of reading to children. And I know that your publisher, Readers to Eaters, they have a terrific tagline which talks about that connection about food literacy and the importance of reading. The tagline is food literacy from the ground up. And many of the books featured on the Readers to Eaters website links the importance of food and health and agriculture. So I'm glad you found each other. But why don't we just start out and say, why food literacy? What does that mean? Food literacy is a growing concept, and it is sort of loosely defined as understanding and educating kids about the impact of food choices on health, community, and the environment. And we know that this is becoming increasingly as important as we look at the issues of the horrible increases in childhood obesity that we've seen over the last few decades, the increases in food deserts, and really looking at how schools and libraries and parents could and should be talking to kids about food because we know that the eating habits kids develop in their youth stick with them the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And fast food marketers know that as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spending billions of dollars targeting young children. And, of course, you're familiar with the data from your work in healthcare. When children see advertisements, at, even at age two, they stick. So I think the fact that you've targeted your books to a young audience. And remind our listeners, what is the age range that you're targeting with your books? Sylvia Spinach and Zora Zucchini are really looking at the three- to seven-year-old age range, so where the kids are starting to have a little bit of autonomy and definitely some opinions about their food choices, but also when they're old enough to start being active participants in how their families eat and ultimately, we hope, grow some of their own food. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to a parent of young children who said that 
at least in the state where I live in Missouri, children are going to be expected to be reading by kindergarten. And so even more important are parents' roles in providing reading material and getting children to read. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just share a little personal story. I remember I was making pea soup one night, and I thought, you know, I had young kids at home, and I thought, oh, this is going to be a tough sell, right? It's not really a very attractive color. But I was reading a book called Mouse Soup, and I thought, I think I'm going to call this soup mouse soup, and I will tell you that my children were very anxious not only to taste it, but ate it all up. And I think if you ask them now, and they're in their late 20s and 30s, they will tell you that they probably still remember mouse soup. So I think you you are sitting on really a very powerful tool for getting children to eat well. Well, thank you. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, and one of the reasons that I've made this big change to really focus on writing and trying to reach kids is that I'm really hoping to create positive emotional memories of healthy items because we know that they'll take them with them the rest of their lives. But I also really don't like calling healthy food healthy food. (laughs) So I try to take a little bit more of self-health approach where you just make the healthy item fun. And Luckily for all of us good food advocates out there, gardens are actually an incredible tool that schools and parents have to do that. Also, you know, coming up with fun names like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. But there is really something about giving a kid a relationship with a food and a little bit of power and fun with food. And I also believe that you really care about something differently when you raise it. So that's another thing that I think is really great about gardens. And there's something, too, about you were talking about preparing the food with your kids. And I think that that's something that creates memories as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at this book, and it's so beautiful. You've partnered with an illustrator. This is the second time you and Anna have partnered, Anna Raff. She's a terrific illustrator. I mean, I look at the pictures in these books, and I'll provide a picture on the website as well as a link to your website to look at some of these books. But the pictures are so joyful, as you mentioned, and inviting, and I can't imagine any child not wanting to dig in literally and figuratively to your stories. Yeah, Anna is Absolutely phenomenal. And it's funny, I've actually only met her once, so all of our collaborations, she's in New York and I'm in Seattle, so they've all been across the country via email, and then we did manage to meet up once for lunch. We did have spinach. But she just brings this incredible sense of humor and play to her work, Mm -hmm. which honestly, when we were thinking about doing the second one together... She's much in demand. She works with a lot of big publishing houses, and Readers to Eaters is still a relatively small independent press. And so, you know, she wouldn't get necessarily the sales that she would have with the the big houses. But I wrote her this letter just saying one of the things that the good food movement really needs is fun and is humor. And you bring that to the table in huge quantities. So I asked her if she would please, please consider doing a second one with me. And luckily she said yes. She thinks up things to include in there that I absolutely never would have. And I mean, just looking at the cover of the book, which if people want to go to my website or anywhere that they might be getting it out of their local library or something like that, the front cover is just this joyful child who is so excited about her garden. And every time I see it, it makes me smile. And so she's just found this incredible way 
to really capture sort of the, the joy and the freedom of summer and also, I think, the power of becoming a food provider for one's family. Exactly. So Sylvia Spinach, I want to go back and just touch on Sylvia Spinach for a moment because with that book, it helped us address the issue of picky eaters. And being a dietitian and somebody who has counseled so many parents, I will tell you that picky eating is one of the big issues that parents face. And how do you deal with a child? And we know that the parent will never win a food war. And in fact, you can set up some really negative lifelong impacts with children if you force them to eat. So much better than forcing a child to eat vegetables is to help them fall in love with it, which your book does. And Sylvia Spinach, of course, focuses on a little girl that doesn't like spinach until, oh my gosh, she grows it one day. But what I love about Zora Zucchini is, as you mentioned, she is now being empowered with this idea of growing a community. So tell us what happens in Zora Zucchini. Well, I'm glad that you raised that because that was actually one of my big goals with this. I mean, I really wanted to write a book about using food as a tool to build community, which, of course, kids would just call having fun with their friends. And if adults were being honest, we probably would too. But basically, in Zora Zucchini, we have a little girl who's facing the summer blahs, and she finds some free zucchini plant starts at her local hardware store, takes them home, plants them in her garden. And um, as I'm sure many people can relate to, soon she has more zucchini than her family could possibly eat. But she has this problem of abundance, which she continually finds solutions for. So first she uses her zucchini to bring her family together around the dinner table and around cooking and preparing food together then she ends up meeting her neighbors to share food with them and, and give away her extra zucchini to the neighbors around the block. And then she ultimately starts a garden swap that brings her whole community together. So this was something that, that I've experienced in my own life where when you work in food and you talk about food and you share food together, it really is a way of creating friendships and relationships where there wasn't one before. And then the other thing that I was really hoping to do with this book was talk to kids about food waste in a fun and engaging way because it's such an important topic and I could not think about how to make it appealing to this age group. I mean, we know that kids who have grown up in this sort of culture of abundance where, you know, there's no shortage of calories around us on any given day, they often don't realize that food is a really precious commodity. So I really wanted to create this little story that would hopefully resonate with kids and parents and then help them shape the way that they think about their role as eaters. Mm-hmm. But I'm looking at the illustrations that Anna gave. So there is a woman watering her garden. And in areas of the country that are suffering drought, the idea of not only would you, if you're not eating the zucchini and sharing the zucchini, you're wasting not only the vegetable, but you're also wasting all the natural resources that went into growing it, such as the water. So you open the door to have a conversation about natural resources as well as reducing food waste and just plain old delicious food. The other thing I wanted to bring forth about this book, and it's getting back to Anna's illustrations, is I have found that children really love to be 
detail-oriented, you know, looking for secrets on pages or looking for, <laughs> right. you know, looking for little, oh, did you, where's the dog in that picture? <laughs> and Anna took the time, I mean, she brilliantly added to the pages pictures of birds in the trees. I mean, she didn't have to do that. There's a little dog looking out the window in the page I have opened here. But you could ask a child as you're going through, well, what do you think the dog's name is? And can you count how many birds are on the page? Or perhaps, you know, at the table scene where the family is sitting together and eating the zucchini, you could say, what do you think she did with it there on that plate? Well, how would you like to prepare it? And then I can see a grandmother coming to visit their grandchildren with this book and a zucchini under their arm and just having a wonderful <laughs> afternoon. Yeah, I'm trying, what are we going to do with it? <laughs> yes, yes. And of course, there's the whole magic of when a child either helps to grow and or prepare a food, you can pretty much bet on you're not going to have a picky eater. In fact, that's one of the main strategies that dietitians recommend is that if you've got a picky eater at home, get them into the garden or in the kitchen, let them prepare. They will love whatever they grow and prepare. Yeah, so part of this book was inspired inspired by true events in my own garden, yeah. but also um, inspired by true events in my own life. The summer that I was writing this, my husband and I were winding up our participation in a program we started where we gave away organic vegetable plant starts to food bank clients, and the program is still going strong today, but it's totally volunteer run. We've been able to step away from it. But we were in the process of doing some research to find out if it had been an effective program. And one of the questions that we asked people who had taken plants was, did you have children who helped you in the garden? And about two-thirds of our respondents said, yes, we did. And then a follow-up question to that was, did you have children who ate the produce that you grew? And again, it was Almost exactly. I think there was one household that reported that, no, the children who'd helped in the garden had not eaten the vegetables. And that was such an incredible message to me, you know, that here there were kids who were so excited about helping and about growing, and then that translated that into them having access to fresh organic vegetables grown right in their yards. That, to me, was incredibly powerful and one of the things that really made me realize the power of this sort of program. And then the other funny thing that we were doing that same summer was we were participating in something called Truck Farm, mm-hmm. which was, it was in coordination with the documentary film Truck Farm. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Great film through Wicked Delicate. Um, yes. Ian Cheney directed it. Anyway, so we were one of 25 groups across the country that planted, we planted a 1972 Ford F-100 with a mobile vegetable garden, and we drove it around to food banks and summer camps and talked to kids about how food grows. And I watched so many kids pick either their first sugar snap pea or their first cherry tomato out of the bed of that truck and just absolutely light up with this funny, almost guilty sneaky little gleam in their eye. They were so excited about eating this food grown in such a funny place. And all they could think was like, this is how they're going to think about that cherry tomato or that sugar snap pea for the rest of their lives. This is the memory they're going to carry with them. And so that is, is really why I ended up trying to talk to kids about food and eating in this more fun, accessible way that would hopefully encourage them and their families and neighborhoods to get out and grow some food together and and make those memories. 
That is a wonderful story. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Catherine Pryor. She's had a long career in healthcare and food, and now she has switched careers, and she has become a children's book author. And we are talking about Zora's Zucchini, her latest and second book. And, you know, I'm thinking, Catherine, that I probably shouldn't say that you had a long career in healthcare. I think what you're doing today is you're taking healthcare up to a more enlightened notch. And rather than working with institutions, you are working with children to prevent the need for institutions that take care of sick people. You know, I hope so. I mean, there is no one answer to this enormous issue that we're facing, but I certainly hope that this is part of the answer. One of the things that was really funny was when I was working with institutions was I would again and again encounter adults who were picky eaters. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I would joke that in these two hats that I was wearing, either promoting a book about picky eaters for six-year-olds or, you know, meeting with hospital administrators to talk about why they needed more fruits and vegetables in their cafeteria, that actually the message was very similar. I just had to deliver it in a different way. And mm-hmm. so that was one of the things that really resonated with me when I was like, these are adults who nobody ever changed their mind when they were young, and they've kept this with them the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an absolutely bizarre experience the other night. I was in the grocery store, and there were these two men next to me shopping, and they were like late 30s, early 40s. I don't think they knew each other all that well, but one of them said to the other, like, oh, broccoli's on sale. Should we get some broccoli? And one man turned to the other and was like, you know, I don't think I've ever bought broccoli. And all I could think was, how do you get to be, you know, a man, a 40-year-old man in this country without buying broccoli? Yeah. (laughs) And it was just this funny moment of like, oh, yeah, we really need to start reaching people at a young age because otherwise they don't ever think to step outside of their comfort zone. That's right. And, you know, for families that are relying on food banks, I think the tide is changing in that I think we are seeing more food banks developing gardens in connection with the need. So you've got people who are coming to pick up food, and yes, there are either seeds or plants or even some fresh produce available. But for the most part, I think we all know what canned food drives look like, towers of canned and processed foods that are high in sodium, as you know, that don't contribute to health. And the new dietary guidelines came out, and we're looking at what are the consistencies among dietary guidelines in every single culture and country, and it is to eat more fruits and vegetables. But when you're on a limited income, those fruits and vegetables may not be available in your grocery store, and they may be unaffordable, or the quality may be poor if they are there. So by helping someone develop an enthusiastic interest in growing just one pot of something, whether it's a zucchini or a tomato plant, it can really be a life-changing event. Right. Yeah, I always think, you know, gardens are sort of the the great equalizer of the good food movement. I mean, as somebody who has been both a professional and a personal advocate for organic and sustainable foods, I've often had that little voice in the back of my mind where it's like, well, low-income families all too often get left out of these conversations. You know, they either don't have the extra money for organic, you know, which can cost more and with good reason. The costs are not externalized. 
or maybe they can't make the hours at a farmer's market, or maybe they're really looking at if those food dollars are really tight, they're literally looking at how many calories you can get per dollar. Right. Um, and so that is a group that has been left out. And unfortunately, it's probably the group that would benefit the most from having increased access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, it's, it's not a perfect solution, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. That's right. And I've also been tracking the increase in farmers' markets. And my goodness, it's exponential growth. And I'd love to hear your opinion, too. But Personally, I think it's related not only to the fresh taste that's available there, but it's also the community that's been developing. I personally think that your book would be a wonderful add-on for farmers markets who want to develop educational programming with children. You know, our market, for example, here in Columbia, Missouri, we're always looking for ways to bring more people to the market. And I think by having maybe a little reading corner where children can read these books and then, oh, gosh, zucchini just happens to be in season, then it's available. Or even reading a book like this before you go to a winter market about any kind of produce that might be available. I think it's a tool that teachers and parents can use to effectively drive children's interest and improve their eating habits. Yeah, and that's actually been one of the most exciting things that happened with my first book was just recently it went into paperback and it was approved for purchase with SNAP-Ed dollars. So that's mm. the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So trying to help families with very limited incomes, help getting them more access to food. The, there was a group in Spokane, Washington, the Catholic Charities Association there, Food for All Program, that realized they could use the book as a way to attract more children of families that were using the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program to the farmer's market. And they did the most creative thing ever, which was they had me come in and talk to an elementary school, which happened to just be adjacent to a farmer's market that they were trying to increase participation in with families using their SNAP cards. And it was incredible. We got to give away 200 books to the kids there. And unfortunately, I mean, we know that access to books and access to good food go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So kids who are not necessarily in the most food secure households also probably are not going to have the access to books that kids in more secure households have. So we gave out 200 books, and in each one was a flyer telling the family about the matching program that the farmer's market offered, where if you brought your SNAP card, you could actually get extra dollars on top of that. And then it also had a voucher for the farmer's market. And so after school, you know, the kids took these books home, and they were really excited. And then their parents showed up at the market with the voucher and using their SNAP cards, many of them for the first time. And to me, it was like, God, this was such an incredible idea on their part, where they were actually using books as a way to get more parents of low-income kids to use their SNAP dollars at the farmer's market. Absolutely incredible. And it also means that all of those kids now have an extra book in their library which that was great. And so that's something that I'm starting to actually see more and more markets trying to get creative with, where how can you actually give a child something that is going to help shape their preference for healthy foods, but also help drive their family's participation in already existing programs that already have support and mechanisms in place for them to succeed? 
how can you help the children be the drivers in their families to get the families to those markets? Yeah, I think it's brilliant. And you're also improving children's reading skills, which we know if a child can read, if a child is literate, then they are more likely to succeed for the rest of their lives. So I think that you are hitting on so many critical life skills to produce a really healthy American citizen. So I'm thrilled, and I would love to see more libraries actually purchase this book. And I want to encourage our listeners to simply ask for their librarian to order both of your titles, Sylvia Spinach as well as Zora Zucchini. And I don't want to leave without giving our listeners the website where they can learn more about your book. So it's com, and that's Catherine with a K, and Pryor being P as in Peter, R-Y-O-R.com. And we'll have that listed with the interview too, Catherine. You know, we just have a few minutes left, so I want to give you a chance to bring forth anything about your experience in reading to children or something about this book, something that, you know, an aha moment that you've had with it that you'd like to share with our listeners. I guess one of the things that I am wanting to talk with my colleagues in this very important movement about is the way that we craft our messages. And just more basically, thinking about how you change someone's mind. So this is something that I've very much seen happen in a lot of the school visits that I do and things like that. So anyway, what I was the thing that I was thinking was I think we in the good food movement often rely very heavily on logic. You know, the science is on our side and so we use it. But that only converts some people. And they're usually the people who are already sort of thinking about the issue. But what I've found through all of these visits with schools and and kids and families is that oftentimes appealing to emotion can be a much more powerful approach than appealing to logic for most people. And that I'm finding that change is richest and the deepest when we look at both logic and emotion. And a perfect example of this is I'll be at a school and there's a kid who is convinced that they don't like spinach until we do the taste, and the kids around them all say that they do. And so suddenly this child is emotionally aware that they are being very different than their classmates, and it might not be something that they're conscious of, but it is something that they are powerfully motivated to try to be more like their classmates. And I think this is something we really need to think about more and more, is how do we appeal to people's very human emotions when we talk about food and the importance of good food and access to good food. We know that the science is there to support it, but how can we convince more people who aren't necessarily on board, how can we get them as passionate about food issues as we are? I think it's a challenge for all of us, and you know, I'm trying to do it in my, my very small very small little way, but it's something that I think is a conversation that we need to have about how we reach new people. Well, Catherine, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want to thank you for thinking so critically about how we can improve eating habits in a fun and delightful way. So if you're interested in learning more about Catherine Pryor and her work and her two books, you can please go to katherineprior.com. We will have that available. And then also, Catherine is published through Readers to Eaters, and that's readers readerstoeaters.com. 
So, Catherine, in closing, I want to thank you for being my guest again. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I want to thank you for spending time with me, Catherine, and I wish you so much luck with this book. Thank you so much, and thank you for putting on this fantastic show.